This is the Islamic History Podcast, Season 2, Episode 12, powered by IslamicLearningMaterials.com. Welcome to the Islamic History Podcast from Islamic Learning Materials. This is where we take the history of Islam, peel back the layers, and add a little bit of spices, and serve it up in tiny little bite-sized pieces. And here's the man who's going to do all the cooking, Mutaki Ismail. Asalaamu Alaikum and welcome back. I guess I have a lot of explaining to do. It has been such a long time since the release of another new episode. And I do have a lot of explaining to do. I've been through a lot of changes in my life and my thinking went back and forth on several things. But I'm not going to bore you with the details right now. I will go over it, inshallah, after the main portion of the show is over in the outro section. So if you want to hear my excuses for why it's been so long since I put out a new show, then just listen to this episode and I'll explain it afterwards. If not, then you can just end it after the main part of the show is over. And actually, this show will be about the assassination of Omar ibn al-Khattab and the election of Uthman ibn Athan as his successor. And so, without any further delay, let's go ahead and get into the show. Here we go with the Islamic History Podcast, Season 2, Episode 12, Assassination and Election. Let's begin with a recap of where we are so far. Prophet Muhammad wasallam died in the year 632 of the Common Era. His best friend and father-in-law, Abu Bakr, was chosen as the next caliph. Several tribes rebelled against Abu Bakr, who then led a counter-revolution against these rebellious tribes. Abu Bakr's primary general was Khalid ibn Walid, and within a year of the rebellion, which was known as the Ridda Wars, it was put down and Abu Bakr was confirmed as the unquestioned leader of the Muslim world. Abu Bakr then instructed his generals Khalid ibn Walid and Abu Ubaidah to invade Persia and Roman-controlled Syria, respectively. Khalid ibn Walid was successful in Persia, but Abu Ubaidah struggled in Syria. Khalid ibn Walid then took over leadership in Syria and he was successful there as well. Abu Bakr died during the conquest of the Syrian city of Damascus and Omar ibn al-Khattab, another companion of Prophet Muhammad was chosen as the next caliph. One of Omar's first moves as caliph was to remove Khalid ibn Walid from the leadership of the Muslim armies. However, though he was no longer the general, Khalid ibn Walid continued to participate as a soldier and advisor to Abu Ubaidah. By this time, the Muslims had stretched their armies too far and too fast, and the Syrians and Persians were preparing a counterattack against them. In Syria, Abu Ubaidah and Khalid ibn Walid fell back and regrouped, leading to a decisive victory in the Battle of Yarmouk in the year 636. Meanwhile, over in Persia, 
another companion named Sa'ad ibn Abi Waqqas was now leading the Muslim armies and he ultimately led them to victory in the decisive victory of the Battle of Qadisiyya, also in 636. These successes in Persia would lead to the near destruction of the Sassanid dynasty, which was the ruling family in Persia. Soon after that, Omar gave permission for another companion, one named Amr ibn As, to lead an invasion into Egypt. This took place in the year 640. By 641, the Muslims had conquered much of Egypt, including the Roman capital of Egypt, Alexandria. The very next year, in 642, the Persians made their last stand at the Battle of Nihavand, but they were defeated once again by the Muslims. This would be the end of the Sassanid dynasty and the Persian Empire. This brings us to the year 644, the year in which Omar ibn al-Khattab was assassinated by a Persian slave named Abu Lutlu. Abu Lutlu was captured during the Battle of Nihavand and was brought to Medina as a slave. It is said that Abu Lutlu al-Majusi held a grudge against Omar ibn al-Khattab because he had come to the caliph with a request for a decision. Abu Lutlu had a dispute with another person and asked Omar to decide between them. However, Omar was fairly dismissive of Abu Lutlu and brushed it aside and did not give his decision immediately. However, Omar did remember the man's request and he ultimately did make a decision, but Abu Lutlu never found out about this and instead held this long grudge against the caliph. Abu Lutlu prepared for the assassination of Omar ibn al-Khattab by soaking a dagger in poison for over a month. As the caliph, Omar was responsible for leading the prayers in Medina. It was during the morning prayer, the dawn prayer in fact, that Abu Lulu decided to strike. Omar ibn Khattab, as the imam and the leader of the prayers, was in the habit of lining the Muslims up by hand, making sure they formed straight rows, and when he led the prayer, especially the dawn prayer, he often recited long chapters from the Qur'an. While he was reciting, Abu Lutlu rushed forward and stabbed Omar several times in the stomach with this poison dagger. When he was stabbed, Omar clutched his sides and yelled out, This dog has stabbed me. Omar staggered from his place of leadership at the front of the prayer lines and grabbed one of the companions named Abdurrahman ibn Auf and pulled him to the front to lead the prayer. It shows that even in the midst of this agony, Omar was concerned about the Muslims continuing their prayer. The people in the front rows, of course, they saw what was happening. However, those praying towards the back, they didn't know. They were still praying and they began to yell out, Subhanallah, Subhanallah, which is something that Muslims say when they feel the leader or the imam has made a mistake in prayer. Abu Lulu now tried to cut his way through the prayer lines and started slashing people and stabbing the companions standing in line left and right. 
In his attempt to escape, he stabbed 13 people, besides Omar, by the way, seven of whom died. Finally, one of the companions took a cloak and threw it over Abolutlu and wrestled him to the ground. Abolutlu, seeing that he was caught and knowing that there was no escape, took the dagger and stabbed himself, committing suicide. By now, there was lots of chaos and commotion in the masjid, and the Muslims turned their attention towards Omar, who was laying on the ground in a pool of his own blood. They used a turban to tie around Omar's belly and picked him up and carried him home. One of the people carrying Omar was his son, Abdullah ibn Omar. He tried to stem the bleeding from Omar's stomach by placing his hand over the wounds. However, the cuts were so deep in Omar's stomach that his son reported that his hands actually went into his father's belly. Another example of how deep these wounds were was that when they got Omar home, they tried to give him some milk to drink. But when Omar drank the milk, the liquid actually oozed out of the puncture wounds in his stomach. Omar then went into a brief coma in which he was out for several hours. But when he woke up, he immediately asked if the Muslims had continued their prayer. Once again, an example of Omar's concern that his people were continuing and being constant with the prayer. Still suffering from his wounds, Omar asked who had stabbed him. And when he found out that it was a Persian slave named Abu Lutlu, Omar was thankful, actually, that it was not a Muslim. Had it been a Muslim, it would have been an indication that he had done something wrong to that person and perhaps he deserved what had befallen him. But when he realized who it was, he knew that he had done nothing wrong to this man and that he was innocent of any kind of injustice towards Abu Lutlu. And Omar was thankful for that. He was also thankful that it wouldn't be a Muslim who would have to suffer the punishment in the next life for killing him. Omar's wounds were very severe and it was obvious that he was not going to survive. Even in today's world with all of our modern medicine, if someone had been stabbed with a poison knife in their stomach so deep that when you drank liquids, it would still come out. Unless that person was to receive immediate medical attention, they would have very little chance of surviving. Definitely back then, when all they could do was tie a turban around his wounds, everyone knew there was almost no chance of Omar surviving. With this realization, the people began to encourage Omar to choose a successor. However, Omar balked at doing this immediately and instead he made wudu and finished the prayer that had been interrupted. He refused to give an answer until he had completed his prayer. After the prayer was over, the people continued to encourage him, but Omar still refused to give them an immediate answer. Instead, he began to prepare for his own funeral. He instructed his son to find out if there was anyone else that he owed money to and began to settle all of his debts. The people continued to pressure Omar, choose a successor, 
choose someone to lead the Muslim world after you. Let us know who will be the next leader. Omar would not answer them. Instead, he then sent his son to ask Aisha, the widow of Prophet Muhammad wasallam, for permission to be buried in her house near the Prophet and Abu Bakr. When Aisha received this request, she replied that she had been saving this spot for herself, but ultimately she agreed to give it to Omar upon his death. The people continue to pressure Omar and to push him to choose a successor. And finally, he gave his answer. Should I carry the burden of conducting your affairs in my life as well as in my death? I wish I could free myself in a way that there is neither anything to my credit nor anything to my discredit. If. I would appoint my successor one better than me did so. If I would leave you alone, then one better than me did so as well. This was reported in Sahih Muslim. When he meant that someone better than him had chosen a successor, he was speaking of Abu Bakr. But when he mentioned that someone better than him did not choose a successor, he meant Prophet Muhammad and many of the companions when they heard Omar's response they knew that he would not name someone directly to succeed him. What Omar did however was perhaps one of the best examples of an electoral system that we have. Definitely better than the fiasco that we are currently facing in the United States to these days. Omar chose six companions who had been very close to Prophet Muhammad wasallam. all Quraysh men who the Prophet was pleased with upon his death and he left instructions for these six people, these six men to choose from among themselves as the next caliph. However, he forbade his own son, Ibn Omar, to be from among the candidates. He said, and perhaps rightly so, that one caliph from his clan was sufficient. Omar died just a few days after the attack in the masjid, and now it was time for the Muslims to choose their new caliph. The six companions that Omar had chosen as candidates were all from among the ten companions who had been promised paradise. These were the six men who were still alive from among these ten companions. The others had all passed away. These men were Abdurrahman ibn Auf, who was the companion that Omar grabbed to continue leading the prayer after he had first been stabbed. Also, Sa'ad ibn Abi Waqqas, who was the general who had led the Muslims to victory during the Battle of Qadisiyah. Third was Talha, one of the earliest companions of Prophet Muhammad wasallam, who was not in Medina at that time and had taken part in the battles of Syria. Fourth was Zubair ibn al-Awwam, 
Fifth was Ali ibn Abi Talib, who had been married to the Prophet's favorite daughter, Fatima, and was the father of the Prophet's grandchildren, Hassan and Hussein. And finally, the sixth was Uthman ibn Affan, once again, one of the first people to accept Islam many, many years earlier in Mecca, and also one of the Prophet's closest companions, Uthman had been married to two of the Prophet's daughters. One died, and then he married the next one after that. And now it was time to choose. Abdurrahman ibn Auf took himself out of the running completely, and he became the de facto administrator of the election process. Sa'ad ibn Abi Waqas was still way off in Persia and couldn't participate one way or the other. Talha was also not in Medina at the time. He was on his way, but would not reach there in a sufficient enough time in order to be part of the process. Zubair ibn al-Awwam, like Abdurrahman ibn Auf, took himself out of consideration for the position. And so that left Ali and Uthman. Abdurrahman ibn Auf, he took some time. He conferred with different leaders, tribal leaders and other companions while he thought about his decision. Abdurrahman ibn Auf came back to Ali and Uthman after several days and asked them to promise to accept his decision if he chose the other person. And both men, of course, agreed. And then Abdurrahman ibn Auf reached out his hand and grabbed Uthman's hand, which was the symbol of pledging allegiance or giving bay'ah in Arabic. This meant that he chose Uthman ibn Affan as the next caliph of the Muslim world. The other companions in the room, they followed suit and also grabbed Uthman's hand, including Ali ibn Abi Talib. With this, Uthman ibn Affan was confirmed as the new caliph of the Muslim world and the era of Umar ibn al-Khattab, an era that saw vast expansion of the Muslim empire and the amazing accumulation of wealth within the Muslim empire as well, this era was now over. These two companions, these two remaining candidates, Ali and Uthman ibn Affan, really couldn't have been more different in many ways. Of course, they were both exceptional men. They were both close companions of Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. But in many ways, they were also very different. Ali ibn Abi Talib had accepted Islam at a very, very young age. He was perhaps, most likely, the second person to become Muslim. He's often not considered the first man to become Muslim. That credit is usually given to Abu Bakr because Ali was still a minor when he accepted Islam. But Ali was definitely, at the very least, the second person after Khadijah, the Prophet's wife, to accept Islam. He had also been married, as I mentioned earlier, to the Prophet's daughter, Fatima, and he was the father of the Prophet's two grandsons, Hassan and Hussein. So by this time, Ali was a fairly young man. By my calculation, he was only about 42 years old when Uthman ibn Affan was chosen as the leader instead of him. 
Uthman, on the other hand, was not from the Prophet's family. In fact, from one of the major enemies of the Prophet and also a tribal competitor of the Prophet's family. Obviously, Ali was the Prophet's cousin and therefore they were from the same clan, which was a Hashem clan, whereas Uthman was from the Umayyah clan. The Umayyah clan and the Hashem clan, they were both clans within the tribe of Quraysh. They were not enemies per se, but they were competitors and they did compete with each other in status and nobility and recognition among the Quraysh and within the politics of Mecca. When the Prophet became the Prophet, it was the Hashim clan for the most part that supported him and the Umayyah clan for the most part that opposed him. The exception to the Umayyahs opposing Prophet Muhammad was Uthman ibn Affan. However, one of the primary leaders against the Prophet was Abu Sufyan, who was a cousin of Uthman ibn Affan. Whereas an exception to the Hashim clan supporting Prophet Muhammad was Abu Lahab, his very own uncle. During the time of Prophet Muhammad's lifetime, both of these men, Ali and Uthman ibn Affan, supported the Prophet in any way that they could. Ali, being the younger one and the warrior of the two, he supported the Prophet physically but with fighting and, and leading battle on his side and on the Prophet's behalf. Whereas Uthman, being the older and more wealthy of the two, Uthman was a very successful merchant and the Umayyah clan that he was from was also very wealthy as well. Uthman supported the Prophet with his money and with his political ties. And once again, Uthman was also much, much older. My estimation is that Uthman was probably in his 70s when he was chosen as the caliph. So he was an older man. He was not the vigorous youth that Ali was. And also, though he was, of course, a companion of Prophet Muhammad he still perhaps held on to many of those stronger tribal ties than Ali had, which we will see going forward in the story, inshallah. And so, in the next episode, we will begin the era of Uthman ibn Affan. Alhamdulillah, I hope you found that beneficial and enjoyable, inshallah. Now I can go ahead and begin explaining the drought between shows. And hopefully, I have my head on straight now and things will be okay. Well, first of all, I've been through lots of changes, as I mentioned First and foremost, I moved to a new home still in the Atlanta, Georgia area in the southeastern United States. However, the move to a new home, it took almost a month searching for a home and finding a home and moving in and settling in and getting things transferred over. It was just a big mess and took a lot of time. It was hard to do anything extra during that period. And by the way, if you hear me sniffling, I have a a slight cold right now and I'm sorry to sniff in your ears and and I'm trying my best to hold it in but it's just not always possible but we'll see what we can do inshallah anyway after a few weeks after I moved to my new home my car broke down 
and I need the car. I need a car to get back and forth to work. And it broke down badly. It was in a transmission. It was like $2,000 a fix. This is like the second, no, this is the third time my transmission had gone out on the same car. I just couldn't do it anymore. So I had to go out and get a new car. In getting a new car, I got to pay for the sucker. So, you know, so that means actually I had to take a second job. Not a real job, I guess. But, well, I drive Uber, okay? Yes, Mutaki Smile is an Uber guy. I do Uber to pay for this car that I got because my regular car broke down. So in addition to my regular full-time job, I do Uber on lots of the free time that I have. That cut my already limited free time even more. I don't have much free time outside of the full-time job. And now doing Uber and Lyft to make ends meet just made things even more tight. And then came Ramadan. All right. Ramadan in, in a new house with a new car, working full-time and driving Uber I, I could. I don't know how I made it through Ramadan in one piece because really I felt like a zombie going through most of those days. And I know there are many people around the world who have much more difficult Ramadans than we have. So I don't want to overlook that. Just want to let you know that it was a very, I would say difficult, physically difficult thing going through Ramadan. But Alhamdulillah, made it through Ramadan. Then as soon as Ramadan was over, a little bit after Ramadan was over, I took my family on vacation to New York City. I grew up in New York. I live in Atlanta now, but I grew up in Brooklyn, New York, and I really want to take my kids to New York. We had planned for it. It was already, stuff was already reserved. So we drove up to New York, spent some time there, drove back, and that took up even more time. Another two weeks gone, just going back and forth to New York. And finally, back here, settled. There's no religious fasting months coming up. I don't plan on moving anytime soon, inshallah. No vacation. Just got my regular job. I'm still doing Uber. Now things are starting to settle down. Oh, yeah. One more thing. I also started another podcast with my daughter. This was this is a, a non-Islamic podcast, not un-Islamic, non-Islamic, secular, basically. It's called Word Story Podcast. Yeah, look for it if you want to. It's about the history of words. Just something for me and my daughter to try to bond together with. And also want to try to do something that wasn't specifically only for Muslims. Just want to do something a little bit different. But anyway, with all these things going on, the, this podcast took... A beating. It, it, it got neglected. Uh, I guess that's all that just combined. And I guess I was kind of burnt out trying to push a new episode out every single week. I think that, that that's kind of took a toll on me also. But anyway, that's where we are right now. I really do believe looking back that I probably just needed a break because as they say, distance makes the heart grow fonder. I began to miss you guys. I really began to miss this podcast. And as you see, I'm back here. I don't know how this is going to go forward, though. I, I intend to continue putting out this podcast. However, I'm stuck between whether I should do the weekly show, which I've heard from many people that they prefer because they're able to listen to it on their commute and they can make it from home to work and back and listen to the entire show without having to start later on. But I've also heard from others who say they like the long show. Hosseini, I think your name was, if you're listening, if you, I, I got your message. I haven't responded, but I got the message you left on the, on the website. Uh, some people like the longer shows. For me personally, I prefer the longer shows also because I can do deeper research. I can take my time with the show. I don't feel rushed to do it. And the research part is the best part. 
of it. That's what I like the most. Now, this is the editing is tedious as heck on those on those one and two hour shows. That that part is difficult. I don't know. I, I guess I'm stuck. I'm not sure if I should go back to the long show format where I was doing one one hour, 90 minute, or two hour long shows, or should I stick with this 30 minute format? And I know you, you might say, brother, do whatever's easiest. I know. That's probably what you're going to say. Many of you will say that at least. Oh, some of you will say it. Let's go ahead and wrap this up. We're going to bounce out with the Nasheed Home by Khalid Sadiq. I think it's uh, quite fitting. This is a very fitting song, considering all the things that we Muslims have been through this year, as well as what I've been through past couple of months. And I'm pretty sure, if you reflect, probably what you've been through also. Till next week. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.
with me deep inside my soul. Wait for me to come home.